What up, audio friends? Hit the description for the time codes on this show. It's going to start with golf, then it's going to football with Jeff Radcliffe. So we got the preview for the Northern Trust, and then auction draft strategy for your fantasy football leagues. If you're a football listener, doesn't give a shit about golf, just fast forward. Or vice versa. Actually, you don't need to fast forward. You can just stay listening because the show starts right now. Welcome to the Pat Mayo Experience, presented by DraftKings 2021 Northern Trust Research Early Picks, and a breakdown of the entire field and course with a look back at 2019, the last time the opening FedEx Cup playoffs event was held at Liberty National. I have some insight on this course because I walked the course. I did my videos. Dave OTs will remember that I was shooting live on the scene that week, following Tiger around. That was a lot of fun. Never want to do it again, but it was a lot of fun for, I ended up getting stuck in Newark because of a rainstorm and then I didn't get home, then I didn't get to shoot my shows and just, it throws off my entire schedule going to places, but it was a lot of fun for like you know, the time that I was actually on the course and filming, but that's neither here nor there. There's a lot of fescue around if you miss the fairway by a bunch and it's real difficult to get out of. More on that in a second. No listeners league link as of yet. I have not received a confirmation email that there will be a listeners league this week. We did not fill it. A week ago. Shame on both me for not promoting it properly. And all of you who listened and didn't join the league, they made it smaller to the point where it doesn't exist anymore. So no more free, rake-free money. I'm going to try to get that rectified and put that in Monday show with Feinberg. Uh, it will not be as big, almost guaranteed, if there actually is one. So that sucks. But either way, smash the like button to the episode. Subscribe to Mayo Media Network. And in the comment section, give me your early lean for the Northern Trust at Liberty National GC. Also, fantasynational.com slash Mayo gets you 20% off all the stats, all the tools, the lineup generator, the ownership projections. You might as well hop in. We got three more playoff events. And the season just starts right away at Silverado again, so there's never a bad time to get in on fantasynational.com. There is, however, a really good time to get in on runthesims.com. Runthesims.com is essentially... What Fantasy National is to golf, runthesims.com is to football. If you want to do your research, you want an optimizer, you want betting tools, projections, game simulations, it's all tools, customizable tools up on the site right now. So runthesims.com slash mayo get you a discount off the package. All season long stuff is already free if you want to go and check that out. But all the week one tools for the season are released as of today. So I highly recommend that you go in and check it out. Slash Mayo at the end of runthesims.com for that discount. Let's talk about the field for this week. We got the top 125 players. I haven't heard anyone actually out as of yet. So this is just sort of by strokes gained and you know, we're living on living on the edge. Oh, wrong one. Where are we going here? There's the scorecard. Here we are. Here's what the projected standings look like at the time. So it seems like Rose Lahiri, Pan Fratelli, Oh, smelly for Delhi and Scott Stallings will end up getting the final five spots. But there's a bunch of guys out on the course right now. I'm filming this uh, in full disclosure midway through the final round at the Wyndham where I have a guy in first, a guy in third, and a guy in seventh, and I couldn't feel fucking worse about my positioning that I'm not going to win any money this week. This is what Harris English last week will do to you. Just strikes the fear of God. I actually think this might be penance from getting that Cantlay win at Memorial. Like, the gods are now paying me back. Said Harris English last week, Really should have won. Was running away with it. Obviously, he doesn't win. Russell Henley is in primo position. And even after playing poorly on Saturday, still ends up going into Sunday with a three-stroke league. That evaporates like that, and he's playing like absolute crap. Hopefully, Henley can hold on and you know, surge on the back nine or something like that. But I'm not feeling good about it as I'm speaking right now. Maybe by the time I finish recording, get the show out, everything will be good. Wouldn't count on it, though. Uh, too many people have money on Russell Henley this week. That it just it can never work that way. It'd be too big of a celebration should anything happen. So it's a bummer. Hopefully it pulls through because I'd like to have some money. I hope to have Brendan Grace inside the top five. Maybe see Woo can come back and get his win. I don't know. But anyway, these are the guys on the bubble right now. So uh, if Pan, Lahiri, Rose, or Warinsky fall out, or even Kucher for that matter, then you're looking at Armour, Patrick Rogers, the first two guys. And we loaded up the top one. Uh, Ricky is out, by the way, as he did not make the cut, as you can see. Uh, 
we dumped in the field for the top 125 before the Wyndham just so we could have something up to research if we wanted to. So uh, this isn't the official field. It's you know basically right to 120 players. There's going to be like five guys that aren't in it and then five guys that are left off that will have qualified when the odds get updated on Monday morning and then the DraftKings prices come out. You'll have the actual field. I'll keep you up to date uh, in the newsletter too, by the way. Hit the description and join the newsletter. There's football and golf going on in there right now with sweet promos and giveaways. Like uh, I think like sort of like the one and done for the uh, golf season that I ran. I think that we're going to do a prop season long props competition, a weekly props competition over at prize picks. So I, I'm going to dump the link in the description of the audio podcast right now that if you use our link in code MMN uh, depositing at prizepicks.com, you basically get double your money up to a hundred dollars. If you deposit a hundred dollars, you get $200 in your account. And I don't know what the price points are going to be for these competitions, but I think they're probably going to be a hundred each and there's going to be two of them. So if you just deposit right now, the hundred dollars, you'll have money for both of them. That seems pretty easy to do. Uh, and then you get to feast on like the really soft uh, NFL preseason lines and hopefully Justin Rose wilt so I can win my prize picks for golf this week on the over-unders. Although fucking Henley's probably going to blow it and come like T28 or something stupid like that. Anyway, uh, hit the description on the podcast or just go to prizepicks.com code MMN and make Make that deposit. So no surprises in the field whatsoever. It's everyone that you would expect. The top 125. I suppose we should talk about the course. And here is the scorecard for Liberty National this time around. Uh, 7,410 yards. That's about 30 yards longer than when Patrick Reed won this event in 2019. Uh, and just a couple notes on how the course actually shapes up. There's 98 bunkers, 10 water hazards, it's bent grass greens. They're going to be smaller than regulation or regular average size greens, like 4,800 square feet. So one of the things that I found, and we'll jump into this in a second, but in 2013 when Adam Scott won, ball striking was tantamount to being at the top of the leaderboard. Uh, just, you know, be pretty good with your drivers, find a bunch of fairways because you don't want to get in the shit. And then whoever had the hottest irons generally ended up at the top of the leaderboard. The difference this time around, and we'll jump over to the leaderboard, as you can see, Reed, Answer, Werner, Rom, Scott, Louis, Snedeker, Rory, Spieth was the top nine finishers in 2019. But the starkest difference was, as I was going through it, yes, you needed to be good at ball striking, but no one's going to be great at ball striking the entire week. And there is a significant amount of trouble around this course if you're off the fairway. Like, even in between the bunkers, there's huge fescue. And if you're in that fescue, you're basically fucked. So you do need an around-the-green game. And I thought this was really interesting to look at. So of the top 20 finishers, you only had four guys finishing the negatives all week in strokes gained around the green. And three of them were pretty minimal. You had Rom, point one strokes lost, Rory and Spieth 0.5 strokes lost, then you had Kisner who was a bit of the outlier, minus 1.4. Everyone else was in the positives and as you can see the top, geez what is that, 15 guys all gained on approach. It's almost takes a complete tee to green game to really excel here and find your way up at the top of the leaderboard. You see how Reed and Answer and even Werner for that matter accomplished what they did in 2019. Again, this last year was at TPC Boston, so you don't want to be looking at that if you're doing course research, by the way. Although there has been sort of a trend of the better players winning at the first FedEx Cup event. Since the inception of the FedEx Cup playoffs in 2007, the opening event has been won by a player inside the top 25 in the world rankings, 12 out of 14 times. We hit Hunter Mahan. I actually just had to retire Little Hunter, my computer I bought with those winnings, uh, in 2014 uh, at the Barclays. He was 40, Hunter Mahan was 41st in the world that year, and Heath Slocum was number 197 in the world and outdueled like Tiger, Ernie, Stricker, Harrington in 2009. Those were the two big outliers. Four of the past six winners of the opening playoff event had a victory already in the calendar year, and five of the past, past six win winners entered the week ranked top 10 in the FedEx Cup standings. So, oh, geez, I clicked on the wrong one again. So that, that kind of narrows down our pool right here. My early lean is probably Morikawa or Spieth, weirdly enough. Uh, Louis, too. I can't believe Burns is inside the top 10. Does anyone have a chance of passing him this week? That nah, doesn't seem like it. No. No one at the Wyndham is really making that big of a run. Uh, I mean, English, This, I mean, all of these guys are such good players. It sets up really well for them. But where Spieth has really improved his driving, and Morikawa is not like the absolute nut low around the greens anymore, that maybe we can start fudging it a little bit. Um, and like those two guys really stick out to me. And I don't think that they're going to be tops in the betting odds. You're going to get Rom 
Uh, DJ was the first round leader here, I believe, in 2019. Everything kind of went away from him. But we can look at the strokes gained. You can see that Spieth lit it up on the greens, lit it up on approach, bat around the green weekend. This was still during, like, Spieth's struggle time. He wasn't a top-end player at the time. Patrick Cantley actually made the most birdies in the field that week, uh, and he lost on approach. Hot putting, hot chipping, but he made a ton of bogeys and ended up coming in T12. Third in birdies that week was actually Joaquin Neiman, who played pretty well across the board, actually putted well for the first time in ages, but lost three strokes uh, around the green, as he's wont to do. We saw a bad outlier performance from Grace on the greens, but he gained almost seven strokes around the green. So what can you really take away from that? Ryan Moore, classic Ryan Moore. But you see a whole bunch of these like different type of players. They're all... Oh, Reed plays longer, harder courses really well. We know that. And then he sort of had like ball strikers delight with Scott uh, at the time and Louie, uh, Snedeker, back when Snedeker was good, I suppose. Uh, and some like shorter hitters, like good, good iron players who hit a lot of fairways uh, was sort of the theme this week. And, you know, we know that Justin Thomas was a much better driver of the ball at that point. Uh, Webb, you know, kind of did everything else. Webb is turned back into like old Webb, by the way. Not Webb who goes out and wins tournaments, you know, and competes in majors and wins Ryder Cup teams. You just saw like triple bogey at the Wyndham. Uh, he goes birdie, triple, birdie, bogey. Like it was just a really weird run for him on Saturday. And that's like the, the Webb I used to know when I used to bet on him like four years ago. It was kind of crazy. So a very balanced game, I think, is what I'm looking for. But here's really the trick to this course. Uh, five of the six hardest holes are par fours that are 450 to 500 yards. I mean, that's kind of generic across a lot of courses, but you can just see how that played itself out. Uh, Champ, Answer, Hadwin, DJ, Reed, Louie were up there, along with Kokrak, Webb, and Hideki, and Stewart and Damon all finished inside the top 10 on par fours from that range. Uh, I mean, you have the, you know, the leader, the guy who came in second, the guy who came in sixth, and a bunch of guys. Hadwin was the only one who really lacked because he just didn't seem to play well anywhere else. So par fours really outweighed everything that year. We can go and check out the actual pass course. we go with the course breakdown. And it's loaded to TPC Boston right now, but you can easily go change that to Liberty National. I'm getting Moose on the case. You know, he's out golfing this weekend. It's really nice where he's at. He'll have it updated by Monday afternoon, I'm sure. I already sent him an email about it, so hopefully he gets on it. Uh, we switch over to Liberty National. And as you can see, amongst the top 10 finishers, strokes gain approach like highly outweighs everything and then you go to the top five and everything kind of evens itself out a little bit more you see a more balanced tee to green type game but you can see par threes just kind of tread water score you if you can be better than the field on the par fours like it actually outweighs par fives this week so that is kind of huge when it comes down to it uh the was it number 15 yeah 15 is the hardest hole on the course it's a 469 yard par four did that get changed let's see 481 yards now so the hardest hole got even longer i wonder how that's going to affect things if, if it'll make it even harder or now it's like easier layup areas i don't know i'm not on the course this year so it does seem like you would probably want guys for any chance of a birdie streak starting on number one as you have nine, 10, and 11 as three of the five hardest holes on the course. Not a, there's a huge eagle rate on number six. It's by far the easiest hole on the course. Number 13 also generates some eagles. So we're kind of pounding down what we want to see this week. I do think that accuracy and strokes gained off the tee is going to make a big difference, obviously, overall tee to green. So let's try to build a model out and see what we got going on this. Uh, check out Mayo Media Network uh, for, you know, Monday is going to be the... Do I have... Oh, I do have a Liberty National one. We'll see how that one was in 2009. There was way too much going on here. There is 92 rounds, so approach off the tee. I'm going to get rid of driving distance as I didn't find that actually made that big of a difference. That was sort of a... I'm going to get rid of par fives as well and amp up par... So we'll amp up. Par fours, 450 to 500 to 10%. Keep par four scoring at 15%. I'm going to take down greens and regulation again. That seems like a weird one for me. Although on smaller greens, maybe we can try to figure that out. Now let's go look at the key proximity ranges for a second, actually. Just so I get a better sense of that. How did the leaders do? Yeah, it wasn't really much from beyond 200 yards. It was a lot in this like middle 125 to 200 range where you see it at the very top of the leaders. Then you had a bunch of guys who gained, obviously. There's different ways to attack this course, but it does seem like the most fluent one amongst all of the leaders was 
175 to 200 in approach. I wish I knew the bucket of how many shots actually came from that range. That's something that we're working on in, in V3.0 of Fantasy National for 2022. If we can incorporate all that data with some visuals as well, that would be awesome. That's what I really love about runthesims.com. Like when you run the Sims itself for the players, it gives you a visualization of everything and their like range of outcomes for that game in each particular stat and how that correlates to either, either their overarching over under yardage for that week if you want to use them like what's their optimal percentage in DraftKings lineups like how often do they hit their upside what is their actual upside and how many times out of 100 do they actually hit that it's a really interesting way and really helpful tool plus it's completely customizable if you want to go look at it as well you can find that down in the description slash mayo for the discount on that so yeah maybe 175 to 200 is probably best off looking at it and I don't want to overreact to what happened because it was a bit different in 2019 to 2013 also the president Cup was at this course in 2017. The only guys currently, and this will have to shake itself out if Kucher makes it or not, but Fowler and Kevin Chappell are the only two from that team, from both sides of that squad that are not currently in the field. Lahiri is kind of hanging on a thread as well, but it looks like he is going to make the playoffs. And that year, Dustin went undefeated 4-0-1 for the international side. Uh, Mickelson, Reed, Thomas, Spieth, and Fowler were all tied for second with three and a half points. Louis was by far the best on the international team. He scored two and a half points. The only international player to score more than two points in the 2017 Ryder Cup, if you were going back and looking at that. So let's see. I'm going to add fairways gained onto here. Not a ton, but I think that could be important. I think that's more important than not to keep yourself out of the shit. I'm going to get rid of... I'm going to get rid of... No, no, I, I need to leave in 5% putting just so it doesn't give me Luke List and all the players that I normally like. It's a bit of a hedge against myself knowing to put that in. I'm going to put opportunities gained in, get rid of greens and regulation gained. I'm going to amp up around the green and I add fairways gain in that proximity range, 175 to 2. No, that's par threes. Stupid me. Take that out. Go to actual proximity range. There we are. Proximity, 175 to 200. So strokes gained approach, 20%. Strokes gained off the tee, 15%. We'll amp up. Fairways gained, 5%. Just making it a little minuscule amount. That means we have 20% allocation to go around. I'm going to go opportunities gained, 10%. Actually, I'm going to go, yeah, let's go 8%. 7% for 175 to 200 proximity. I'm going to bump up around the green 10%, and that gives us 100. So the final tally on the modeling is approach 20 off the T15, par 4's overall gained, 15%. Maybe I'll... now I'll keep it there. For, uh, 400 and, 450 to 500 par 4's 10%, around the green 10%. Sand saves, 5%, strokes gained putting, 5%, fairways gained, 5%, opportunities gained, 8%, and proximity, 175 to 200. You can use more than this. You can use less than this. I don't usually use this many stats, but hey, I keep finding guys who are good at, maybe I should start betting 54-hole leaders, because I seem to be good at that. Can't get anyone to, I need to add in like the clutch gene or something to the modeling and see how I go. I'm going to wager Morikawa, Answer, or Spieth are number one in the modeling right now. And this is over the past 24 rounds. Morikawa, power answer, Cantley, Matsuyama. Oh, Speed's actually down there a little bit. What does he suck at? Oh, that's Burger, sorry. Speed is bad at strokes gained off the tee. I mean, that, that rates out pretty well for him. Let's see how he's been doing. Although he struck the ball really well at the open, that wasn't counted. And before St. Jude, when he just barely like scraped by, lost the field a little bit, he had gained in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight consecutive tournaments off the tee. The irons were down at St. Jude. That was a bit of an anomaly for him based on his past performance. But if he can just chip the ball a little bit better and drive the ball a little bit better, and essentially, I mean, he's probably not going to gain eight strokes on the field uh, putting once again here. But if he can gain his normal like three to five and the irons click a little bit more, he drives the ball pretty well and at least keeps it in play. I think Spieth is super live here. Uh, obviously, he kind of fits the criteria. He's won already this year. He's a top 25 player in the world. He's inside the FedEx Cup top 10 right now. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Who are some players I would not expect to be up here? Streelman is going to have another nice week at the Wyndham, too, it looks like. Yeah, he's kind of like the old dude type of player, bad out of the sand, but he hits so many fairways. You see, he's 11th in fairways gained. We know that he's a very spotty putter, but all right, that's an interesting one that pops up. Matt Wallace, I have not heard from Matt. Like Ryan Armour's not going to make the playoffs. Looks like he's going to be on the outside looking in, but he rated out really well coming into the week. Shez, fucking Shez. 
killing me. Just ruined so many of my good lineups at the Wyndham. So, I mean, I probably can't hold that against him. It's Chez Reevy, after all. So, yeah, Morikawa, worry about the putting, but the around the green and sand saves have been getting better. Let's narrow this gap a little bit to past 12 rounds. I did mention this is on bent grass a little bit earlier, but we can take a look at bent grass putting as well. That should give a lean to Morikawa and Neiman, of all people, as sort of different outliers, like above what their normal baseline is. At least in my mind, those are the two that really stick out to me. So over the past 12 rounds, you got Morikawa, Harry English, Rom, Matsuyama, Seamus Power. Can we really go with Seamus Power? Man, in a FedEx Cup playoff event, he's been fucking killing it. Just absolutely crushing it. I don't think he made the cut at the Wyndham, though. No, I can't remember. I should probably look that up. Let me just do a quick scan here. Oh, good. Henley's back in the lead. And Grace is in second. All right. Getting fired up over here. That's that's fantastic news. Make some more birdies, Siwoo. And we're good to go. Streelman, Rose, Piercy, Kisner, Grace, Sloan, and Nah, all tied for second at the moment. All right. Henley wins, Grace top five, and I got some. I got myself some cash for the week to go wasted on the playoffs and football upcoming. Yeah, Seamus Power did make the cut. He is T63 through 10 holes starting on the back as I am recording this. Ah, pretty good off the tee week. Decent iron week. Decent around the green. Pretty mediocre putting. He's lost 3.2 strokes putting. So actually more than that. Oh, shit. Yeah. Ah, he had a decent round two, I suppose. But yeah, the putter has been really bad for him. But, I mean, he, he continues to rate out well. I, he's a hard guy to know what to do with. And you see, like, S- Brian Stewart, who's having a pretty decent week as well, he's also up there. Do I really want to go with him? I feel like he actually played well last time it was here. Let's take a look at Brian Stewart. Rascals checkmate card now and thrust. Brian Stewart coming down with the Northern Trust. T52. All right, a lot of it was putting. So probably going to be off Stumanji. There's Spieth. Let's go back down. Let's see. Gim, Shez, List. All the guys that I went after this week who were absolutely terrible. Bo Hogg is going to be on the outside looking in for the playoffs. Charles is sort of interesting, I suppose. Gracie as well. Sergio on paper kind of fits that Adam Scott type player. Huh. Ryder. Okay. Eh, maybe the short term is not the best way to look at this, just because it gives so much credence to guys that have played like the past six weeks in these like super easy events versus some of the top end players who only play WGCs and majors. So maybe shortening the sample. I, I think if you look in the six thousand dollar range, once that comes out, that might be a way to go look at it. But and uh, we probably want to take a longer view on this for the very top players in the field. Keegs is still up there. What has he been doing lately? No, Fairway's been Fairway's been bad for Brooks. For Keegan, they're up there. Berger, I mean, Berger does make a lot of sense. He made that run at Southwind, and he just couldn't putt. Maybe Berger should be the early lean here. He has a win, 9.9 strokes on approach. He's been playing some really good golf. Couldn't chip, couldn't putt, but we know that's sort of an anomaly for him. The irons have been amazing. How is he doing this in terms of accuracy and distance? Where's he rating out against the field? All right, gaining... Did not gain, I mean, at the Open and John Deere, those are not big driver courses, but the U.S. Open is. Gained distance there, gained on fairways there, gained at St. Jude is a driver course, and gained on fairways. Okay. All right, I think I'm going to go with Daniel Berger. Problem solved. Berger. I guess if I take Berger, Morikawa, and Spieth, I'm betting guys that are like 12 to 1, 18 to 1. Maybe we'll get a break on Berger. Maybe he'll be like 35 to 1 or something like that. He did not play in this event in 2019 because of an injury, as I recall. Grio was actually fourth in greens and regulation gained against the field, which is a pretty big number considering he missed the cut. I didn't go to look in how many strokes he lost putting, but I bet you it was all the strokes that week. Let's see, 2019, yeah, lost four around the green and over five in two rounds putting, but he absolutely struck the shit out of the ball at this course. Man, if that guy could just putt, be so good. So good, but he can't. Maybe uh, this is where actually I saw Corey Connors on the putting green at this event, and he missed like 38 consecutive eight-foot putts just practicing. It was like the same putt over and over. I was like, oh, God, this isn't going to be good. So he's kind of cooled off since his really hot run. Aaron Wise is one to look at, I think. I got to see if he's actually in the playoffs first, but... Oh, yes, he's number 62 in the playoffs. All right, so he actually finished quite well and was up there in birdie or better rate at Liberty National in 2019. Ranks out 34th in the modeling. We know he can't putt. That's just a thing that you're going to have to live with with him, but it is uh, technically a coastal course. It's right on that, like, river. Uh, Is it the Hudson River? 
it's funny, I used to live like five minutes from this course, and now I can't remember any of the geography of New York whatsoever. So 66th and 69th, uh, he's having a better week right now at the Wyndham, although that's, you know, obviously not a corollary course to this whatsoever because it's so much shorter, but he is in T39, Oh, and he made a nine, Jesus Christ, he made a nine on number 14 on Sunday. So that's not going to help you. And he's still even on the round. So you can see how we can make these birdies and be up there in bunches. But for DraftKings scoring, I mean, it's you got to think of this more like a limited field, not uh, an invitational field. Like there's only 125 players, top 65 in ties make the cut. So if Aaron Wise makes the cut, he's probably going to outscore his position. He's actually putting really well this week at the Wyndham. Really wonder what happened on this hole. Now I'm very curious to go check this out. Oh, OB off the tee. And then out of a bunker to unknown OB. Oh, Jesus. Guy's, guy's shot tracker looks like my shot tracker at the moment. But listen, he has some spike performances and some pretty good fields too, like longer, harder courses, Memorial, Wells Fargo, those two. I mean, I'll probably just have to have Raza on this week and gush over how good Aaron Wise is. It is encouraging to see him. Actually, let's see how he's doing here. Now he's not significantly better on Bent than anywhere else. Maybe Wise is a sleeper down the list that we can take a look at. Let's go to overall strokes again and just check out Bent Grass putting and maybe some mixed condition modeling. I probably won't model it out per se, but I'll just kind of take a look at the course conditions and see how it goes. So over 7,400 yards, par 71. Let's turn that filter on right now and just see who the best players are. And we'll even look at per round who is the best. We'll go by average, strokes gain total. Hovland, Rory, Thomas, Wolf, Gim, JT. You can see Gim and Wolf only have two weighted courses uh, of this. So, and some of them are probably majors at this point. So let's just take that off. Let's take par 71 off and just go over 7,400 yards and see what that shoots out. Xander is now up there. Per round, it's going to be Xander, Thomas, Brooks, Rory, Dustin, Rom, Reed. That is an interesting way to go about things. So there's Reed once again. He plays these longer courses a little bit better. So does Cantley. Who's like the worst guy? Stanley, Gooch, Connors, Wise is up there as well. So maybe Wise is going to be like the long shot of the week as I go through it. Very excited for him to lose 20 strokes putting in the first two rounds and be in dead fucking last. But hey, that's that. Them's the break sometimes. Let's turn off those filters over 7,400 yards and click on bent grass greens. And we'll go with, well, let's go past 24 rounds. See what happens there. And we'll go with average, bent grass greens, Tringali, Kokrak, Poulter, Xander, Scott, Zach Johnson, Troy Merritt, Patton Kazire, JT Poston, the Todd father, Pat Perez, and Adam Shank are going to be your best guys. Of like the studs that we talked about. Uh, Harris English actually qualifies as that. Berger, Spieth, Neiman, Mackenzie Hughes. Oh, maybe it's just to play the same guys that I played at the Open Championship. I'll be good. Reed, Webb, Munoz, Bryson, Cam Smith. Cam Smith is do do something here sometime soon. We know his around the green is really good. Could this be a good Cam Smith course? I worry about his driver. And he's very inconsistent on the approaches. But when he, I mean, he usually chips really well. He didn't at the U.S. Open, obviously. But if he can putt a little, chip a little, not like drive the ball into the fescue every single time. All right, maybe Aaron Wise, Cameron Smith. I'm just looking for ways to lose my money this week. Like all my money is what I'm talking about here. Who are the worst guys on Bermuda over the past 24 rounds? Macumba, hardly newer. Keegan, Liss, Sergio, Stanley. Yeah, that story checks out on that one. Kramer, Hickok, Leishman, Neesmith, Ortiz, Hoagie, Matsuyama, Phil, Fratelli, Brennan Steele. All right. And Aaron Wise. There he is. Yeah, Scheffler, Bubs. Probably stay away from Bubs. It was one that I was thinking about going back to him with this week, but I just don't think I'm going to get there with him. So that was the preview for the 2021 Northern Trust. Like I said, for all the audio listeners, or even if you're a video listener, go to prizepicks.com, use code MMN. When you deposit, you get a match deposit of up to $100, and you might want to have some money on prizepicks for some announcements coming soon. It's not finalized yet, but I'm really working on them to get this together, because I think that'll be a fun competition that we can all play against each other with. For the Listeners League, uh, hopefully I'll have more information on that on Monday. Uh, I would expect it to probably be 2,000 people so you're going to want to get your spot right away if they do give me one. And I'll be back with Feinberg. DraftKings is going to be on Wednesday this week. What do you want to eat tonight? Maybe you want some home-cooked favorites, but don't feel like going to the store. That's what I do. I'm like, oh, yeah, I want this. I also don't want to make it. Maybe you want something exciting and new, but it would just be great to stay in tonight. 
I can, I can vibe with that as well. DoorDash connects you with everything that you want whenever and however you want it. Get what you want to eat right now, right to your door with DoorDash. Along with the restaurants you love, you can now get groceries and other essential items delivered with DoorDash. Get drinks, snacks, and other household items in under an hour. Craving late night ice cream? Forget that one key ingredient for dinner, or maybe you just need to stock up for the week. With DoorDash, get everything on one app. With over 300,000 partners, you can support your neighborhood go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Popeyes, Chipotle, or Cheesecake Factory. Ordering's easy, and your items will be left safely outside your door when you choose contactless delivery drop-off. For a limited time, our listeners of the Pat Mayo Experience can get 25% off and zero delivery free fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code MAYO. That's 25% off, up to $10 value, and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code MAYO. Don't forget, that's code MAYO, M-A-Y-O, for 25% off your first order with DoorDash. Subject to change, terms apply. Let's talk about one of the most undercovered parts of the fantasy football preseason, that is auction draft strategy and how it's changed from even five years ago to what we're seeing right now in 2021. You always hear people talk about how much better auction is than snake drafting. I think that everyone almost by consensus agrees with that statement. The problem is when you see experts leagues or people are drafting high stakes leagues, it usually reverts back into snake only because it's just easier to do. It's less time consuming. Like you go into an auction, be prepared to be there for a while. And people just, that's why they love best ball and these like flash drafts is that they can pound out these drafts in 30 minutes, go on with the rest of their life, do another draft. They don't need to commit an entire evening or an entire afternoon to do one of these things. But if you do have the time, I highly recommend auction drafting. It's the most pure form of fantasy football drafting. And you do have the ability to go get whoever you want. So no one better to talk about this with and the actual strategy behind it than from FTN Fantasy, FTN Daily, and FTNBets.com, where if you use code RATPACK, that is RAT with one T, PACK, you'll get a discount off all three of those sites. Host on SiriusXM, it's Jeff Ratcliffe. What's going on? Not much, man. I can't believe it's already fantasy football draft season. July every year. Fastest month of the year, man. Every single year. But, you know, I'm not complaining. I'm looking forward to all these drafts this month. Yeah. Are you doing a bunch of auctions or do you fall in the same boat as me where you're probably going to end up doing one or two just because the time commitment's so large? Yeah, I will be doing one this year. And, and you're right. The time commitment is large. You do need, if you're doing it in person, an actual auctioneer as well. So it's it's hard enough to get people to show up to fantasy football drafts sometimes to get somebody who's not in the draft to show up and be the auctioneer because you don't want anybody in your league being the auctioneer. That's another one entirely. You got to bribe them with some beer or something to get them there. But it really is, like you said, a, a unique way, very different from Snake. And And I do think everybody out there, if you haven't tried it once, you definitely should at least try it, see if it's something you might like. If you can actually get an auctioneer and 10 or 12 or 14 people together in a room to do the auction, it's probably the number one experience I think you can have as any sort of draft in fantasy football. They are a great time and they legit take like seven hours to do. It's like an entire day experience. Well worth it to do once, but it is like, think about how hard it is to get 12 separate people to show up and agree on a time for an hour and a half long snake draft. Uh, that rarely works out well. That's like 500 emails back and forth between 12 people. So having the 12 people show up to one location and get someone to do that auctioneering is pretty tough. But if you can swing it and hell, pay the guy like a hundred bucks to do it or whatever, plus free beer and eats wherever you rent out. Uh, I'd say at least try to, I mean, try to do it all the time if you can, but if you can do it once, uh, it's unlike anything else in fantasy football. So I've been through my fair share of auction drafts over the year. The strategies always change a little bit, but the number one thing that I always notice, Jeff, and maybe you don't notice it, maybe it's just something weird that I've picked out and like the 20 of them that I've done over the years is that the very first player in the draft tends to go underpriced versus like the next 10. No, I think that's fair. I, I, I think that's a good observation. And, you know, it, it's, it's interesting, Pat, because it's, you know, we'll dive in a little bit more strategy in a sec here, but just something very basic. 
I'm a huge advocate of tiers, regardless of what format you're drafting in. And if we're drafting in a snake league, well, you know, a lot of times it makes more sense to be at the bottom of the tier. You get maybe slightly better value at the bottom than you do at the top. Whereas in auctions, it's the reverse. At the bottom of the tier, when when the tier starts to dry up, people tend to overpay. Whereas at the top of the tier, you might be able to get a, a half decent value. And you know, depending on who's nominated to start the draft out, like if somebody does go big here and they say Mahomes, they say Kelsey, they say McCaffrey, you're right. They may go a little. Maybe maybe McCaffrey doesn't because running backs at the top always go for crazy amounts. But maybe they do go slightly undervalued if it's Devonte Adams or Tyreek Hill. They're slightly undervalued. I think that's a good observation. Yeah, you need to figure out those tiers pretty quickly. I've been through most of my positional tiers on Mayo Media Network. Subscribe to Mayo Media Network, by the way, and leave a rating and review on the Pat Mayo Experience Audio Podcast. As well, you know, if you're just hanging here with us. But uh, if you hit the description, my rankings are down there. I've talked through the tiers already and understanding those tiers and really keeping up to date with them. Like you said, like let's say let's say people go by the chalk because nomination strategy is something we'll talk about here in a second too. That if McCaffrey is the first player up, you have it, and this is going to be for like a two hundred dollar budget. That realistically, what should he go for? Like eighty bucks, seventy five bucks? Like that would be fine to pay for for the number one player overall. But what you might see is that. Some people are hesitant at the beginning of the draft. They're like, oh, I don't want to spend all my money now because then I might not get X, Y, and Z a little bit later on. But then you'll see McCaffrey go for like $71. And then six picks later, like Saquon Barkley is up. And let's say you have him at the bottom of your running back, like one like elite group tier. If you feel that way about him, all of a sudden everyone knows he's the last running back available who's on that tier, or at least two people think that way. And then all of a sudden he's going for like $83 because everyone has this $200 budget. And they're like, well, I haven't spent any yet. Now I need to spend money. I mean, it's precisely right. It's precisly right. And and there there is like the the frenzies that happen at times, uh, especially if it's a player at the bottom of the tier. I, I've seen this happen so many times where I got to get somebody in this tier. Okay, well, so does somebody else. And then they start bidding against each other and they overpay. And overpaying, I, I'm fine with other people overpaying because that means they have less money to go up against me when I want to get some of my guys. But you just have to know that, especially at the bottom of the tier, Overpaying happens. And and Pat, everybody who plays fantasy football is competitive in some way, shape, or form. Well, an auction is a competition, and sometimes people don't want to lose the competition, meaning they don't want to lose out on the player. But in doing so, they're actually losing because they're spending more money if they do overpay for that guy. I don't mind overpaying and outbidding someone from time to time if it's a player I truly believe in, and that's a player that I want on my team. And I feel like I have that liberty in an auction format. But I feel like there's different types of bidders, different types of auction players. Like, I'm someone who's very active in the auction the entire time. A, because I get bored really easily, so I just, like, kind of want to be in on it. And I'll continue to bid, but if I... It all depends on who you're going up against at the same time. So if you're completely blind in an auction, there's a feeling out process with the other people. Like, who are the people who will go back and forth and kind of play chicken on a few players? Because I do think that one or two people in your auction draft need to be the ones to keep people honest and get into bidding wars, even if they don't necessarily want that player. I will advise that don't start upping the bid on a player like you legitimately do not want and going over the top. Like, and... There are other people that just kind of sit it out that when they start getting involved, you're like, oh, I know that guy's going to go in on a bit. It's like when you're sitting at a poker table, you walk blind into a casino. After about like 10 or 15 hands, you can see the guy who's seeing every flop. He's kind of splashing around. And it's really hard to tell what he has because he's playing every single hand. Then you see the one guy who hasn't played a hand out of the first 15 and number 16, he's coming in hard. Chances are he has aces or he has kings or he has ace king. And that's how I think that the feeling out process needs to work in the auction draft. So that leads me to bidding right away. Do you like to put the people up in almost like an ADP order? Do you like to nominate people that you're not necessarily interested in? Because that's usually what I try to do. I don't put up shitty people right away, but I try to keep it random with who I put up. Like, I'm not big on Jonathan Taylor this year. I don't necessarily... It's not that I don't want Jonathan Taylor. It's just I'm not willing to pay the price that he is going to go for. I would want him for probably $10 less than he's going in an auction. I probably want him six to seven picks after where he's going in a snake draft format. Like, he's fine. 
I like I wouldn't be like horrified if I had Jonathan Taylor on my team, but he's not a target that I'm wanting to go out and get. So if it's like I'm nominating third overall, I'll put up Jonathan Taylor. And I don't like to start the bidding at one because I feel like that really takes up a lot of time. I'll be like 35 bucks, Jonathan Taylor. Let's start from there. And then at least I can suck people out of money early on with players that I don't want. And, you know, listen, he's going to go for more than 35 bucks. I'm not at risk of ending up with him in that spot. But at the same time, hopefully I can squeeze people out of money. Then they just don't have the capital to bid against me on the players that I do want. Yeah, I like that call out. Um, that's part of the strategy for sure. Putting up guys who you don't want, but also who are good guys, who are sexy guys like Travis Kelsey. I'm probably not going to pay for Travis Kelsey in an auction because he's going to go for more than I want to spend a tight end. But he's he's a guy to, to nominate if you get the opportunity. So I think that's part of it. But Pat, I love the poker analogy. So the most dangerous players at the poker table aren't the players who are splashing in every pot, aren't the players who are super tight like dan harrington back in the day tight they're they're the players who are picking and choosing their spots and you don't know if they're sitting on aces or if they have three seven off and they're just reading the table so in other words mixing it up is very important so i will use two different strategies depending on my read of the entire room at the time early on can almost guarantee the guys that i'm putting up i don't want you know almost guarantee. But as we get into the middle phases, there will be times, especially if we're at the top of a tier where I might toss a guy out there who I actually do want. And I think I can slide in on the cheap and grab that player. So I think you should mix that into, into the uh, arsenal as well during an auction draft, not just, I mean, that's the age old advice and it's good advice is to put the players up that you don't like, but you also have some opportunities to get some good values because especially if you do it like four or five times in a row and you don't bid beyond the opening bid on the player you put up, the rest of the room's going to see that and they're going to think, okay, well, yeah, he doesn't want whoever he just put up and uh, you can swoop in and, and maybe, you know, get a solid value on it. Yeah, you need to mix up your strategy a little bit. I like the way to do that. Like the first two or three nominations, maybe. And the thing is, don't put up a player you don't want who sucks at the same time. Like put up <laughs> yeah. someone good that you know is going to go for money because the entire point is to run everyone else out of money so they cannot bid against you on the other higher price guys that you actually want. Do you have a preference amongst how to allocate your money? Not necessarily by position, although you might have that. But like, are you someone who will pay up for like four guys knowing that there's always a distinct point in an auction where you don't necessarily run out of players who are like worth it, but I'm always pro running out of money before hoarding my money. I always am. Like I'd rather spend, I, I don't get to take the money with me when I go. I'd rather spend the money on players that I want. And by the time it gets to the end and there's one and $2 players left, you're still going to find guys that you want there. Yeah, that the old stars and, and scrubs approach. I actually don't take that approach. I do allocate my budget. So I use about 5% of quarterback, uh, 40 to 45% at running back, 40 to 45% at wide receiver, depending on where things are. And that leaves me with about 10% at tight end. So that's, again, I'm not going to have Kelsey. He's going to go for more than 10%, more than $20 in a $200 budget. But I find that a lot of times there are really good values. The nice thing when people do spend, you mentioned $80 on McCaffrey. I could see that happening. I don't value him there. I have $67 on him. So he's going for significantly more than I'm willing to pay. If they spend that money on McCaffrey, they won't necessarily have enough money in certain spots in the middle of the draft when there are wide receiver twos out there that I could be scooping up on the cheap to go against me. So I actually like to pick my spots. I'm usually not hyperactive early. I do like to feel it out, like you said. And then I really want to pick my spots with the one exception of I, I would pay, I am going to pay this year for a top 10 running back of a couple candidates that I like the most in that range. And then otherwise, I'm going to pick my spots uh, in the middle of the draft uh, as wisely as I can. I'm usually not the first person out. You sound like you're the first person out of each auction. I'm usually not that first person. I'm not usually the first person out, but I will seize the high-end value if people start getting wet feet. Like, I'm not afraid to jump in and pay. Like, it's usually... Like you have your big running backs that go, there's usually like five of them. And then people are like, 
well, there's only like two good ones left. And they, those two either go for way more than they should or a bit less than what the other ones do, depending on who you're drafting with. So if I do, if I already have one of the big running backs, and then another top 10 running back comes up and it's just nowhere near the price point of the other ones, I'll be like, well, there's two guys left. And I know in the tier down, they're probably worth 15 to $20 less than this guy. Then I'm just not afraid to go and spend my money on them. Like, I, I don't think that you should sit there and be like, well, I need to have $120 left for the mid rounds because then I can pick up like four really good receivers in there. I'd be like, now, nah, like just give me the good players now. If I think that I'm getting them at a value, I'll make up the difference somewhere else. Cause I, I do think that the end of the draft strategy is super huge. And there's always players that you can figure out. And you have to think about it too. Like you have to spend $1 for each of the spots. So you can't spend over your budget and you need to allocate at least $1 unless you have a $0 draft, which most leagues are not. Most leagues you have to spend the $1 on someone. But the way that I see it is I'm basically drafting a starting roster. I don't care about kicker. I don't care about defense. Those are $1 players. I want to have probably three running backs that I like, maybe a fourth for you know five bucks or something like that, four to five wide receivers that I like, and maybe two quarterbacks if I'm streaming, one quarterback, depending on how it goes uh, throughout the course. But there's going to be like four or five dead spots on my team that I can fill out through the waiver wire. I can fill out through a trade later on that I'm not really factoring in those spots into my auction team. And when you say stars and scrubs, that's kind of a part of it. But I feel like there is a bit of balance to my team because I absolutely punt four of the spots. I just don't care about them. I mean, that makes sense. Um, you know, and when you're talking about some of the values at wide receiver that you can get specifically, also at quarterback, I, I can't tell you how many times I go into a draft where you see some of the top guys, Mahomes this year, you'll have Josh Allen, Kyler Murray, maybe even Lamar, Dak. Those guys are going to go for decent money. But what does Matthew Stafford go for? I mean, I guess if he continues to get all this hype, maybe that shoots up. But what are guys like him going to go for? Probably not that much. You're going to be able to get the upside, the super high upside late round quarterback that you'd get in a snake draft for like a dollar or two. You're going to be able to get like the Justin Fields of the world, the Trey Lance is the world for nothing for peanuts. So I hear you there. And maybe even with that, you walk out and you don't even really have those dead zone spots on your roster, especially given how much upside there is even in the late rounds at wide receiver this year. It's really good too, because there are very few mock auctions that are out there because it's just really difficult to do content for because each auction is going to be so much different. All it takes is for two guys to be huge Giants fans in your league and like, I want Kenny Galladay. Oh, you know, I, I, I need Tony. I, I need Evan Ingram, like Daniel Jones, 12 bucks. Like, if you understand that, like, is that something? Because we used to do that in our baseball auctions all the time. Like, there'd be a huge contingent of both Yankees and Red Sox fans. It's like, well, let's just nominate all the Yankees and Red Sox first and get rid of these guys. Uh, because just knowing that there's three or four people in the league who just demand to have those players on their team because they're morons. And they will bid 25% over whatever these players are worth. <laughs> I think that mentality is going away a little bit. So I'm, I'm in a long running uh, home league. It's, it's not a, an auction league, but it, Hey, I'm in the Philadelphia area. People love the Eagles in this league. They are diehard. Some of them, even with Eagles logos tattooed on their bodies. Right. And they would always opt that route. I had one friend in particular who would not draft anybody from the Cowboys. And this was like the height of the Romo era uh, maybe early career Dez, like, you know, guys like that were on the roster. Jason Witten all those years would not draft these guys at all. Even he has come to the light and realized, okay, I can be a fan of the team and I don't want to screw my, my fantasy squad over at the same time. But you may, get a, you may still get a little bit more homerism where players that, you know, everybody in the league is familiar with more so than the rest of uh, players around the NFL, they may go for a little bit more. Just one of those things, though, Pat, that, you cater your your strategy regardless of what if it's a snake draft, an auction league, a dynasty rookie draft, whatever. You cater your strategy in part to the tendencies of the league around you. So I, I do think you have to factor that in. But I, you know, I'm not going to overpay for a guy just because he's on a, a favorite team of mine or or something along those lines. Do you ever freeze bid people? Because I've had a lot of success with this, especially on players that I want. Because frankly, do you find that most people start like when they throw a player out, regardless of who they are? Will it be first bid Christian McCaffrey $50 or Christian McCaffrey $1? What, what do you normally see? I've seen both. I, and I think the $1 thing is, is people who are generally new to auctions. They won't necessarily toss it out there. 
at an appropriate number. But yeah, 50, I mean, heck, if you're really a good starting spot, you want to see if people are in on McCaffrey, throw 60 out there immediately. You're talking 30% of your budget right away. People want in on him, they're going to have to pay. So I, I do that approach. You know, you, you, using your auction values before the fact. One thing, by the way, if you're new to auctions and you want to get in, people have said this to me, like, they'll say, well, you have these auction values, but then the players don't go for that. Yeah, that's that's right. The auction <laughs> values are a market value that we're setting on these players. It's an expectation so that when we're in the midst of the draft, we know if we're actually getting that guy at slightly under value, which means, you know, we're saving some money on that player. Or if it's a point where we're way overspending, then we may want to back out of that particular, you know, bid. But um, you know, having those in place for sure is helpful. And then you can use that to set up if you wanted to open at a higher number. Like if you had Kelsey, I mean, I, I think it would be, you know, you want to see if people are really in on Kelsey, put them out at 40 bucks right away and see see where people are if you actually wanted to have them yourself. Cause uh, I think he goes for 40 to $50 this year for sure. And, and, you know, that's a good way of weeding out some of the traffic. And it's also, Pat, a good way of speeding up what yes. can be a very long day. Yes, that is absolutely the main reason for the, the larger opening bids. One, you can box people out right away because it's just a really big number. It's jarring to see. And then sometimes you can force people into overpaying for another player, too, just because there are some people, like myself, who are a bit click-happy in the online auction rooms or just <laughs> kind of want to... They don't like sitting out for like an hour at a time and keeping everything moving. They want to be involved in the action, even if they don't want that player or not. What I was speaking about about freeze bidding, though, is a lot of people will throw out players for a dollar or two dollars. Good players who are going to go for like 55. So in the midst of everything, this happens a lot easier in the middle rounds when... Now, let's take a random receiver. Adam Thielen gets thrown out. And I don't know what Adam Thielen is going for in auctions right now. I assume like 18 bucks or 20 bucks or something like that. That sounds reasonable to me. I mean, maybe that's too high. But you're going to have your conception of what the value is for these players going in. Someone will throw Adam Thielen out for a dollar. Someone will bid two. And it'll go kind of quick, like one, two, three, four. And it doesn't have to be Adam Thielen. It could be anyone that you have a specific value that you want. And this is a way you can actually get players for under what you might actually be able to get them for if there's a giant bidding process. Because then people see six bucks, seven bucks, whatever, eight bucks, whatever. But if it gets to like five, six, seven, and you have a good player, even take a Jonathan Taylor, for example, and be like six, seven, eight, then you have the manual bid sitting there and be like 49, boom. And then it jumps from six to 49 after people have been bidding. It kind of, it's like throwing cold water on people. It just stuns them back for a second. <laughs> and then you only have 10 seconds. You have to wait for like everything to kind of run itself out, like the 30 seconds on the clock. You get down to 10. And if a bid is made after 10, then it resets at 10 and goes again. So you kind of shock people into freezing a little bit because this new number is so jarring that they now have to think about it. So they've spent the first like five seconds reacting to this number is up there. Then they only really have five seconds to react and to keep going on a player. And sometimes you can catch everyone, not necessarily sleeping, but they just don't want to make a decision of that magnitude so quickly that you can end up getting a player because of this jump bid or a freeze bid uh, at a much lower price than maybe you would. It doesn't work every time, but it might work once a draft, twice a draft, if you deploy it properly. I can see I've seen that happen before. Yeah, definitely a strategy you could use. And I think you're, you're really highlighting the psychological aspects of fantasy football drafting in general. So I have seen people who have lost a bid and you, I can tell you for a fact that they, they do not hear anything that is said in that room for an, at least another couple minutes because they're in their head and they're so frustrated that they lost the bid and they basically gone on a mini tilt. Sometimes that'll affect them beyond that point, but a, a lot of times maybe it doesn't. Either way, if you, if you like sort of lose your, your, your bearings for a minute and you're not paying attention and concentrating during the draft, you're going to miss opportunities. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've seen similar things like that. And then the room kind of is quiet for a minute and a player goes way cheaper than he should. Like I'm not, I'm talking like feeling, okay, I have a $16. You're pretty close. I have $16 valuation on him. Maybe he goes for like eight bucks. Like he goes for like half of what he should because people aren't paying attention or they're not really, you know, they're, they're sort of thinking about what just happened and boom, the bid is over. And then there, there you go with Adam Thielen. That happens in, in snake drafts as well. Uh, that's why I always tell people, don't get sniped. And I'm not saying, you know, don't have the player who you have on your board get picked right before you. Of course, that's going to happen. Have more players. 
You should never be in a situation where you're sniped because if you're sniped, you're going to make a mistake. And if you make a mistake, you get into your head. And if you get into your head, you're going to start screwing up. So, you know, stay, stay with it and stay confident. Uh, so also, Pat, I think it's a good point just to be aware that if this does happen and somebody else pulls this move, just be aware of what's happening and don't be as jarred by it. Know that it is part of the process. Last thing that I, I have to contribute, at least to auction strategy, is really understanding how many players and the budget of your competition and what they have left. Because this is a way, especially towards the later end of drafts, like if you have $7 left, but you only have three spots remaining, that kind of covers up what you could be doing and how much you can spend per player. Obviously, you could spend $5 on one of the spots and one in one. But if everyone's almost out of money or you know someone's like not paying attention or they're auto-drafting or whatever they're doing, you can save some of the players you like if you know that everyone's going to run out of money very quickly and everyone's down to the $1 bid, but you have a max $2 bid available. That or maybe someone else has a max $2 bid available. But you can look at each of the rosters and see what they can spend left over to you that sometimes a $3 opening bid means you get that guy automatically or a $2 opening bid means no one else has, actually has the funds to bid $3. Knowing that can be very valuable at the end of drafts. It won't always work out in your favor because you might not have money left, but understanding what your competition has left to bid to can be huge for you. Or what positions, like you, like if you're sitting there with nine, 10 or 11 bucks and you have like your one of three people who has that much money left, go see what positions that they need. They might not need the same positions as you. Uh, I mean, maybe that late in a draft, that won't matter, but you know, they could have seven running backs at that point. They need to take a tight end or they have to take more receivers. And you, know, you need running backs that you know that running back is probably going to go for a little bit cheaper because they're just simply not going to bid on them. And that way you can save the extra buck, the extra two bucks, the extra three bucks, which really come in handy at the end. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, you can have a little little formula to help you out for their their max bid. You just take one plus their budget remaining and then subtra subtract the roster spots they need to fill. And that'll tell you the most they could possibly spend. And I, I can't, you know, there. it's always fun too, Pat. Like if you know you're going up against somebody and you know, all right, well, they have 13 left and I could easily just go to go beyond that. You just go 14, you know, just like call it a day. They can't spend any more there at the end of the draft. Yeah. So use that knowledge uh, to, to your advantage. And I think that's a good call out too of picking your positions wisely at the end of drafts. Uh, you know, if you can get something really cheap because your opponents don't need that spot, then by all means do it. Uh, you know, good stuff there. No doubt about it. Do you have any other auction tips? Because I think I'm basically exhausted on it. And I, I would say that just go with the flow of it. Like you're going to have a strategy going in. Probably five picks into it, your strategy is likely going to be blown up. So you have to adjust in real time <laughs> with this stuff. <laughs> you do. You do. You also really, I, I talk about the psychological aspects a lot. And when, when it comes to snake drafts, you know, people often say snake drafts are checkers and, and auction drafts are chess. Uh, I think that those people aren't playing the snake drafts well enough then because you can certainly still have a chess match in a snake draft. But part of it is it ain't about you, right? It, yes, we are drafting our team, but we're also playing our opponents. Regardless of a snake draft, an auction draft, whatever, you have to know what your opponents are doing, pay attention to what they're doing. And then beyond that, pay attention to where they are physically, mentally, emotionally, because sometimes, as I said, Folks will go on tilt a little bit. And when folks are on tilt, then it is your opportunity to really strike and you can really go after things, especially in the midst of an auction. They, they get a little emotional, even if they're not physically, visibly emotional. It's more of like an internal thing, but you can see it going on with some people. And I, I would say take advantage of it if you could. Play every angle you possibly can in a fantasy football draft. All right, Jeff, thank you. Uh, I didn't want to make this like a discussion that went longer than an actual auction. So I think those were probably like 11 or 12 really good tips for people. I mean, hopefully they're good tips and you can deploy them. Um, I, I think that wraps up the auction part of it. I, I wish there was more auction strategy content, but I feel like we've now exhausted it. Maybe there's only so much you can do. I think we did a pretty good job. Uh, honestly, if you take on board what we just talked about, allocation, uh, nomination strategy, reading the room, uh, how you're actually building your roster, your, you know, all of that. Then it just comes down to reps, Pat. It's just like anything. And that's the hardest part. 
mock draft mock auction drafts aren't very common not a ton of content out there but each time you do it it gets a little bit easier and pat the best feeling i don't know if you've ever had this but the the feeling in the room right before the auction starts like the excitement it's something different you don't quite get that with a snake draft because of that and then once the first big bid uh bidding war comes in and and the room just starts getting all you know fired up there's nothing better than that in a fantasy football draft Jeff Radcliffe, check him out every single day on Sirius XM Fantasy at Jeff Radcliffe on Twitter. And like I mentioned, Rat Pack at FTN Fantasy, FTN Bets, and FTNDaily.com. What do you have already released and what can we be expecting to come up? Are you going to do your huge list of prop bets again? Because those were awesome last year. Yeah, prop bets will be coming. Uh, we have the the game plan, though. That's probably the biggest thing over at FTN Fantasy from yours truly. That is a draft guide magazine. It's a PDF download where it's written by me, cover to cover, and it's updated. So all of the news, all the injury stuff, anything crazy that happens, we keep updating it right on through fantasy football draft season. So you have an updated set of rankings, projections, player profiles, and my draft board. Along with that, though, I got to give a shout out just in general to the FTN Fantasy HQ. Our suite of tools continues to grow. You're not going to find a more comprehensive set of tools out there right now. And it's all at your fingertips with a sub. Uh, it, it's just a fantastic subscription. I use all these tools myself. I help design like 50% of them. So, yeah, it's, it's just a, it's, a, it's a good thing with all the information we have. All right, that will do it for me. You can follow me at the PME. Hit the description for the Apple Podcast Giveaway. We're up to a lot of money. We're into four digits in terms of cash giveaway for the rating and review for Fantasy Football Picks and Bets. And you can check out all the rankings of the other shows up on Mayo Media Network and down in that description too for the hot link sub to the audio podcast if you haven't already and leave a rating and review. Thank you all for watching. Smash the like! And I'll see you next time. Experience! Experience!